This is Tap In Geek Out, the podcast that's always right side up in the upside down. I'm your fat Rambo, Eric G. Hollis, here always with my co-host, Doug Lund, and also Carl Lundin. And we're going to start before we get into the pop culture. Carl, you've had a really interesting week this week. Tell us about it. I had a fucking homeless guy steal my salad on Tuesday. It was steal, not, a- not toss. No. <laughs> Although, to be fair, the condition I was in, he probably could have got away with tossing my salad, too. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, I had a rough day. So, so as you guys both know, I started a new job at a pretty cool place downtown. And I get around pretty easy down there and, you know, hit all the different restaurants and stuff for lunch. And it's, it's pretty awesome. They, uh, they actually have bikes that we can ride to get around the immediate metro. But they're like 800-pound donkey bike cruisers. And so I brought my roadie in. And I uh, was using it to get around. So the first day I had it out, I'm running up to this little grocery store to, to grab some lunch. And on my way back, of course, my roadie's got super thin tires on it. Like a dumbass, I wasn't paying any attention. And I buried my fucking tire in the trolley track groove and went over the front of my fucking handlebars. So I hit the ground at probably about 15 miles an hour, both knees, strained an ankle, strained a wrist. Uh, bruised a rib along the way. And so the first thing as I'm sort of collecting my senses laying in the middle of Main Street is this homeless guy that runs up to me, smoky style, and goes, you got knocked the fuck out! And then just runs off into the night. So all these people <laughs> like come over and they're worried about me and they're trying to get me out of traffic because I mean, I'm literally in the middle of a street called Main Street. So this is obviously not a good thing, right? And uh, they get me up and they kind of get me out of the street and I'm sitting there and I'm checking myself out. I'm good. I think I can get back to work. And I looked around and I was like, hey, does anybody see my salad? For that matter, where are my sunglasses at? And uh, one of the ladies that had helped me out the street goes, oh, that nice homeless man ran off with him. (laughs) So the guy ran up, insulted me on the ground, grabbed my lunch and sunglasses and absconded into the night in downtown Kansas City. So... That was the beginning of my week, and I've basically been laid up for the last four or five days on the couch, so I've been glutting my way through Stranger Things and Spider-Man and and Avengers, and so I'm like primed and ready to go to talk about some geek shit, but yeah, it it was a rough 4th of July week for me, so. You're an experienced bike rider, too. It's not like this is the first first day you got on a bike. Yeah. What bike? (laughs) And so the thing that's so funny about that, kind of in retrospect thinking about it, is I'd not really realized it, but the trolley track is basically in the bike lane on Main Street. So I, I don't know that they could have come up with a better way for people to hurt themselves. I'm glad you're okay, Carl. I'll say first. And fuck Kansas City. I don't know if you mentioned that you live in the KC Metro, but dude, homeless people in, in Denver, I don't think they go so far as to seal your salad. <laughs> the irony of the whole thing is, I'm the one that's forever making fun of all these lunatics running around town on the scooters, like waiting for the first one to die and uh, laughing at like how unsafe of a proposition it is. And the first time my dumb ass gets out on my bike, I go over the handlebars and arguably the busiest street in downtown KC. So clearly a higher power was tired of me being uh, mean to the scooter riders. Oh, my God. We could do a whole episode on the damn scooter phenomena because I agree with you. I, I think it's just tragedy waiting to happen. And I want to say that it's already happening fairly regularly. But when I was out in San Diego a couple weekends ago, um, I mean, we've got the scooters in Denver, but they were everywhere in yeah. the Gaslamp district. 
if we do that episode, uh, we should get your GoPro, Doug, and one of us should test out the scooter. Probably me. I will make the trip. I'm not afraid. You haven't been hurt bad enough then. I don't know, man. I I don't skate as often as you bike, but I also don't get as hurt as you do, obviously, either. Yeah, that's the problem with being clipped in when you go down is, it, you know, people are always afraid, well, I won't be able to get out of the pedals. And that's not the problem because they're, they're like ski bindings. They eject with a, a fairly minimum amount of force. You know, the problem is that the bottoms of them are basically just like slick plastic soles. Like there's nothing to it. So even if you land with your feet underneath you, they're going to be under you for about a half a second before you go assholes over elbows in the air because you have no traction, no ability to save yourself. So onward and upward, what what are you drinking today, Doug? Sunday afternoon recordings are are difficult because I, I had not planned on drinking today, so I didn't stock up any cool beers to talk about. But I mean, we need something to discuss, right? And Carl, it was actually you that introduced me to the beverage I'm enjoying right now, dubbed the summer beer. And I've since learned that depending on where you are in the country, they call it something different. But essentially, it's a little vodka, some lemonade, limeade. I've actually got some uh, raspberry lemonade that I use today mm. because it's delightful. And then you top it off with uh, a few ounces of uh, cold Coors Light. So I'm not going to review the Coors Light, but uh, th- this concoction is something that I would absolutely recommend for anyone looking uh, for maybe something a little different You know, during the, the hot months. It's nice because it's refreshing and it's light and uh, you don't get too hammered because Provided that you don't spike it with three shots of vodka, it's um, relatively low alcohol. Carl, what kind of proportions do you use when you pour these things? Because yours are the best to date. Uh, I, I, I'm a little sneakier with the vodka, but I'm not much of an afternoon or a day drinker. So, you know, after nine o'clock, all bets are off when you start mixing your drinks. So I'm, I'm kind of a two shots to a 32 ounce glass. Half of that lemonade, quarter more being beer and then throw the ice in for the rest of it. I like mine a little heavier on the vodka than than the beer, but that's just a, a preference thing. And by the way, you know, it's an alcoholic I'm so, thing. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you like the summer beer. I'm so glad that you guys took the recommendation because I remember the time that you had those at my house and you and Nikki both realized how good they are. But, you know, when I told you that I was drinking bourbon and Diet Dr. Pepper, you turned up your nose. And I couldn't believe that given that you were so dubious about my my choice for the summer beer that you wouldn't at least try the bourbon with the Diet Dr. Pepper. I can't stand Dr. Pepper. Two of us on this podcast, and Doug and I never agree about anything, but Dr. Pepper tastes like shit. I'll say it right now. <laughs> Agreed. All right. That's that's fair. I mean, it's not for everybody, but uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you guys like the summer beer. I'm glad you've adopted that as a Lund drink. It's absolutely become a summer staple. It's one of probably a dozen apologies I should lead with for this episode. Not only am I, I think, the only one drinking, which means I'm going to be more incoherent than usual, but it's been a while since we've done this, so I'm kind of anxious to see how the, this whole shit show is going to go today. going to have to knock a little rust off the ball sack here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another thing that we all three have in common is we all three finished Stranger Things pretty quickly. It came out on July the 4th. I think, Carl, you were done that day because you, you're not able to move. Doug, I don't know when you finished. I finished this morning, and I think it's safe to say that we all really enjoyed the show. Yeah. 
<laughs> I did. Um, we finished it last night, and it goes pretty quickly because it is only eight episodes, so probably just under eight hours in, in total runtime. I'm still, I guess, processing my feelings about this third installment of Stranger Things, but I guess if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be underwhelming. I'm with you on that one. I think there's a lot of good things to say about it. I think there's a lot of uh, important beats that they hit, not not only from a nostalgia perspective, but you know, legitimate plot movement. But overall, I, I feel like we're at a point where they need to really open the kimono and start to tell us what's really going on. Are we dealing with hell? Are we dealing with interdimensional travel? Or whatever, you know, like what is really happening here? Because we're not really getting anywhere. We're just fighting off the next thing. And at some point, if you want to create closure around a story like this, you've got to start to identify the source and deal with it from that perspective. I don't know. I think if there was never another season of Stranger Things, that season three was perfect closure, in my opinion. I don't. It doesn't all have to be explained to me. You have kids running around a mall, throwing firework bombs, killing a monster. That's what Stranger Things is all about to me. I thought the end, the last episode, uh, Popper's letter to Eleven had me in fucking tears. Yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of good moments uh, in in the season. I wasn't underwhelmed. In fact, it didn't blow me away, and it did go by very quick. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think compared to how this series started with the strength of the first season, and I think I felt the same way largely about the second season and the third, is that it just felt like kind of a retread of the same story where you have. Will Byers, who is kind of the conduit, if you will. And in this season, he served as what? The warning, the alarm that the big baddie was near. His Willie senses were tingling. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Peter tingle. Yeah. <laughs> he had a Willie tingle. <laughs> you know, on top of that, the, the do's X of Eleven just being there at every crucial moment to save the day with her psychic powers. It felt very repetitious right up until I would say the last two episodes. And Eric, you're right. The crowning moment of this season was that farewell letter from Hopper. And you know what we didn't do at the top of this episode was mention that this episode is going to be spoiler heavy. And if you haven't seen stranger things and you haven't seen far from home, then uh, park this on, on your phone and come back and listen to it afterward. I'm on board with basically everything that you just said. And and maybe that's what I was trying to communicate when I said that, you know, I feel like we need an explanation is if you're going to keep sending this stuff at us, you need to give us a reason why. Where is this stuff coming from? Why is there purpose? Why is there intent? What's really going on? Because as it is, you're right. I mean, it's just like Buffy-esque, you know, monster of the week at this point. And it needs a little more definition and substance to it. Like, why is all this stuff happening in the first place? But having said that, there's also a lot of positive things to say about it as well. Like, I, Absolutely. It was a really good, fun ride. I, I mean, Heather was home. I, I think we watched it on the 4th. We went beginning to end, you know, sat on the couch and watched the whole thing. And so for perspective to say, well, it wasn't quite as good. Yeah, but we still sat there for eight plus hours and went nonstop through the episodes. And you don't do that with something that is less than A minus material in the first place. I loved that we finally got uh, the Russians involved because I thought that was fun. Um, we got the, the fucking Terminator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got the Terminator. Shot, right? shot for shot, guys. I'm going to go back and research it, but there are two shots I remember of that character in particular that are James Cameron's exact camera placement. Exact. I believe you, but I just I would love to be able to go back and check it. So 
one of the things I, I was going to ask you about with respect to the Russians is were they trying to get into America circa Red Dawn, right? Like they they were trying to punch a hole through, but not so much to get to the upside down because they had no idea what was waiting on the other side, but that they were trying to use it as like a means to say like invade America from the middle, a.k.a. Red Dawn. I had planned on talking about it last, but since you brought it up, this was probably the the part of the show that I enjoyed the most because they didn't specifically address it. I absolutely think that the portal via the the upside down from wherever they were in Russia to Hawkins, Indiana. I mean, they did say that, you know, the location to open in this thing was important. So they clearly wanted to get in there, but they didn't show any Russians entering or, or exiting. But you have to think that that was the mechanism through which they entered the U.S. and probably the mechanism through which Hopper escaped at the end. Again, I didn't want to talk about this until the last. But uh, right, right. I mean, they very clearly mentioned the American in a cell. Right. Who doesn't think that's Hopper? We never saw him die. Right. We, yeah, we saw and, the other Russians that run in got materialized or dematerialized, but we never saw Hopper die. It's funny you put it that way, Doug, because that's exactly what got me thinking about it was, OK, well, if we've acknowledged that Hopper came out on the other side, then clearly this thing's running both directions. And you're right. We never got a direct a really good explanation for how you got all these Russians there in the first place. And sure, shell companies that built the mall and shell companies that did the construction and everything else. But at some point, you know, if you're actually bringing things across the border, we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred troops and, you know, a couple hundred Soviet military uniforms. That's the sort of thing that gets held up at customs, you know, so especially back in the mid 80s at a point in time where not only were they very fixed in pop culture. So I, I love that they went to that trope because it absolutely fits with the series. But right. uh, yeah, there's there's no way that many Ruskies get in and out of Indiana without someone noticing something. Right. The other one I wanted to call out that I thought I, I really enjoyed about it, that I thought was cool is the mall was fun. The mall was awesome because there there is so much B sci-fi stuff from the 80s that's like, you know, the killer mall kind of scenario, which was cool. But the other thing that I liked that I thought was very cool and timely was that they addressed the idea that this mall was starting to dry up their downtown and it was changing the face of the town. Uh, and coming from, you know, towns that were basically that size, like Junction City, you know, we saw that happen. You know, we saw Main Street go away. We saw it replaced by the strip mall on the edge of town and whatever. And so I thought it was cool that they kind of worked that in as a very practical component of what was going on in the time period. I love that mall because that's my mall. That's Gwinnett Place <laughs> Mall that they redid. So I, the whole time watching the show, that's the food court I've sat in. I've been to that store over there. In fact, I have posters hanging up in my house that I bought at Gwinnett Place Mall. So just like Doom Patrol, it's filmed in downtown Lawrenceville. I geek out all the time over that. Same geek out in Stranger Things because I know exactly where where they filmed that, which is pretty cool. And yeah, no, the mall did dry up the town. In fact, that's why you get the side plot with Carrie Elways, which I thought was I thought he was kind of wasted. What was not wasted, however, was the theme to the never ending fucking story. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. So many feels. Oh, it was so good. It was and good when they did it. But when Lucas was singing it to him at the end. That might have been my favorite scene in the whole series. When they're packing up the house and they're ragging on him, I, I was dying laughing because that's exactly the kind of shit my friends would do to me. So over the years, my girlfriend's given me a lot of what the fuck is wrong with you looks. I think the best one she's ever given me in my entire life was when they started singing that at the beginning and I actually knew the words and I started singing along 
And she just looked at me like, you're never getting laid again. <laughs> Turn around. <laughs> Look at what you see. Really? Okay, I'm going to do this by myself? Stop. <laughs> That's bad, dude. That's it's, real bad. It's, it, well, yeah, it's I bad. mean, it's, it's me, so it's going to be. I thought it'd be kind of fun if we could do a reference list, right? Like, how many call-outs for references do you think you can remember from this? Oh, my God. They, the kids go to see Day of the Dead, correct, in the first episode? Right. And also Back to the Future in the last episode. And it, it was very creatively used how they use the Back to the Future music that's playing on the screen at one point in the story. I thought it God, was God, Yeah, I saw that, too, and I actually stopped it. Again, Heather's sitting on the couch with me. I'm like... Do you realize how brilliant that is that they're actually using? And I'm not sure if it was actually the song or if they were just kind of carrying kind of a medley that sounded like it. But it was obviously supposed to, like, give you that that feeling. And so, yeah, super, super use of nostalgia. I was also going to bring up the marquee. I don't know if you guys paused uh, in the theater marquee, but you had Cocoon. You had Daryl. You had Fletch. Yep. Um Trying to think of some of the other ones there. But yeah, I, I went back as soon as I saw the full theater marquee and hit and hit pause to see all the movies that were there that weekend. And I, I think that they're pretty spot on. I really want a Daryl season in season four of Stranger Things. I feel like we need a robot kid to round out this group uh, as, as a late introduction, because clearly these guys are, are, are deep fans of, of all that genre stuff from that period and thinking ahead enough to use Daryl on the marquee obviously means it's on their radar. I would it love also obviously that. means that that movie was in theaters at the same time as back to the future. Well, no, no shit, but I mean, still it, it didn't, they didn't necessarily have to use that one, you know? Uh, but I just thought it was so good that it was there. Like, I really would love to see a Daryl reference in, in the next one, you know, built into the plot. One of my favorites, again, I was just thinking about the references, the girlfriend from Utah, right? The Canadian girlfriend is of course the reference to the breakfast club. Because Anthony Michael Hall's character talks about this girlfriend that's from Canada. I'm pretty sure when they went to code names there in that last episode that the group Griswold of, family, the Griswold family. The thank Griswolds. you. What year did the National Lampoon's Vacation come out? Eighty three. All right. right. So so it would have been reference material at that point. Other than that, obviously, you know, the blob was huge in this one, right? Oh, the stuff was one of yeah. the movies on the the marquee, and I found that very uh, very surprising, and also on the same line as the blob. I like that we dealt with the kids getting older. I thought that was good. I thought it was uh you know the inevitability of relationships and everything, and how that stuff would start to like okay, you guys are special, and you get kind of a break from the real world because of all the craziness you're expected to deal with, but then things quiet down, and they become normal kids again, and you got normal kid problems and. Hopper having to deal with Finn as the snotty boyfriend was awesome because that was such a classic 80s dad move to like lose your fucking shit on your uh, your daughter's boyfriend and reading the riot act. I thought that was appropriate and good and kind of showed that the kids were aging and that, you know, we were going to talk tackle different subject matters this time around. So, yeah, I mean, again, overall, I liked it. I thought it was well done. I thought I thought it hit all the right beats. I just feel like it's kind of entering lost territory where, okay, we've seen a lot of weird shit. It's time for some explanations about the weird shit. Yeah, and I guess I don't focus as much on the explanations as I do. A, a good soundtrack and good references, great scenes between characters. I thought the, uh, I guess one of the only new characters we got was the character played by Ethan Hawke's daughter. 
And I thought she did an amazing job. In fact, her and Steve wasted during the last two episodes of the show had a lot of really good comedic beats. There's a lot to be said for that. They carried uh, a lot of those episodes with their humor. So, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, one of the other things I'd like to see a little bit different in a fourth season is, you know, Steve started out as the cool kid and then, you know, he kind of got some of the cool beat out of him. And I feel like it's kind of time for Steve to get the legs back underneath him. Like he deserves if this if this thing's going to go, say, one more season, for instance, I want to see Steve go out on top because I, I think that he deserves it. I mean, he's been a good guy and he's taken care of these kids through these these last two seasons. And, you know, it's time for Steve to really get a win out of all this because you thought he was going to get the win with the girl. You thought he found the girl that was the right girl. And then we found out that she's not the right girl. So, you know, again, kind of got the wind taken out of his sails as, as far as getting a win in this season. So if you want to talk about scene stealers, I mean, Maya Hawk as Robin was fantastic. But the girl that played Erica was the highlight of Stranger Things 3 for me. And let's not forget to talk about Dacre Montgomery because we, we got a heavy, heavy dose of Billy this season as the, the main baddie. Yeah. And he fucking knocked it out of the park. Absolutely. He did. Yeah, you didn't really get much character development with Billy, but what do you really do with that character? He's a piece of shit. So they made him the biggest piece of shit in the world who was redeemed a little bit at the end. I love the acknowledgement uh, that monsters aren't born, monsters are made. You know, I mean, to me, those are kind of the best villains because they're the most complex villains, right? And Eleven being in his head, you know, seeing the things in his past, you know, and seeing the the abuse from his father and everything, it, it gave you a sympathy for the character. And you kind of got hints of that in last season when the dad kind of knocked him around in his in his bedroom. But, you know, this really, like, clarified it for you that he was once this good kid and that, uh, you know, bad things happened and turned him into a bully. I like that quality to storytelling where, you know, your, your, your villain's not just a villain. You have to acknowledge that monsters are made because if, if, if monsters are made, then maybe they can be unmade. Maybe they can be saved. And to your point, I mean, you know, he he sort of saves himself at the end by saving her. Amazing job by the actor. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, but yeah, I like the more complicated nuance to him as a villain this time around. I also have a special fondness for characters that are lifeguards by trade. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know her name. I think you just mentioned her. So so I'm going to ask you to repeat it. Erica is 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 the younger sister, right? Right. Lucas's yes. younger right. sister, Erica. Lucas's younger sister, right. And she was, I mean, a freaking highlight for the show. I've never wanted to sort of dislike a bratty fictional character quite as much as her. And that was, I mean, her whole purpose. That was a function of her as a character, you know, to play that role. And she was perfect at it. There, there are people that I, I, I've seen in roles over the years of just watching different shows that, you know, you get to a point where, like, you hate that person and you think to yourself, but this is a fictional character. Like this is not real, but I still like fundamentally dislike this person. And in a weird way, it's a compliment because you're saying they're so good at what they're doing on screen. They're so believable in that way that it's like transcended being a role. Like you're seeing that person that way. And she very quickly fell into that category for me that she was just such a snotty little shit that you just didn't like her. And you like remind yourself, this is a kid playing a role. So yeah, kudos to her. She was incredible. She started off a little Arnold from different strokes, but she grew on me. You know, one of the interesting things about this show is that uh, they get to lean on a lot of those 
heavily used 80 tropes. And I guess you could even argue that they get to hide behind them a little bit because the bratty younger sister is, you know, along with the Russians is another one of those things that we saw frequently in the 80s. Do do you think maybe that's something that hamstrings them a bit in in getting too creative and being able to branch into storylines that might have actually surprised us because as much fun as I had with this, again, I was a little underwhelmed and it's because at no point during this show did I see something that I considered like groundbreaking television. E? I got nothing on that, man. (laughs) (laughs) References, references, right? Cerebra was an X-Men reference. Oh God, we did. We missed that one, didn't we? Yeah. We missed tons, man. If I would have known you were going to ask about references, I would have had a pad and paper out because I promise you there's 30 or 40 or more. And that's exactly my point. I mean, you can build this show around everything that has already happened, and it it doesn't leave a lot of room for, I guess, real original storytelling. It's a very steady, deft hand to to run something like this well. Because, for instance, we were super jazzed about Ready Player One. And, you know, Ready Player One arguably is the single most culturally referential piece of material that's ever been created. I mean, just by, by sheer volume that's shoved into it. And, and yeah, I mean, I would agree with you, like in that particular instance, like it toppled under its own weight, uh, because it was just reference after reference after reference after reference. And I didn't feel like there was enough story to like hold it all together. I think that these guys do a good enough job and and the group of writers do a good enough job of kind of lacing in and out of it. That, yeah, I mean, you're kind of stuck with certain things, but I think that's part of the ride. I mean, I think I think the ride of acknowledging the trope that we're getting ready to go on is part of the fun of it. And I think people expect it. It's like it's like watching a James Bond movie. You know, there there are certain things that have to happen in a James every single James Bond movie. And, you know, once you engage in a trope in in this kind of storytelling, I don't think your audience really wants you to deviate from it. And yet at the points that they do, it becomes some of the most compelling parts of this season. And I'll give you one example. The scene where they've got Alexei the Russian back at the house of, uh, I don't remember the character's name. Brett Gelman was the actor that played. uh, He even made a point. Yeah, the bald eagle. There you go. So we've got Hopper and Alexei and the bald eagle and Mrs. Byers, played by the always lovely Winona Ryder, who somehow oscillates between looking like she's 60 years old and 15 years old. (laughs) In this show, I don't I don't know how that happens, but the time that they're spending there trying to communicate with him and then you get Hopper going on his tirade about the Slurpee, that to me was some of the best parts of the show, the, the acting, the storytelling, and it was all aside from all of the 80s laden bullshit that the, the rest of the series is not burdened with because, I mean, that's one of the things that we love about the show, but it was free from having to cater to any of that. So let me ask you a question. Are you reaching a point where you're starting to become fatigued by 80s reference nostalgia? How can you not? I, mean, do you, I don't know. I, it's still fun to look at, but do we want to do more on Stranger Things or do we want to wrap up? I don't know. I figured Eric was going to spend at least 10 minutes circle jerking on Billy because he developed a hard man crush on him in the second season and got to see him play a, a much bigger part in this year. You know, I think it was a true missed opportunity when he was sacrificing himself for them not to play Billy. Don't be a hero. That was what playing, playing in my head all the time. But yeah. he was a hero. He was. How do you think 
we get Hopper back for a season four? Or do we get Hopper back for a season four? Maybe he's got to sit a season out. The plan is to only make one more season of Stranger Things, right? I thought this was supposed to be the last season because of how old the kids are getting. I remember reading that, too, that this was the finale, but... They've definitely confirmed that, well, not confirmed because Netflix hasn't officially renewed it, but the showrunners have said, yes, we're doing a, a season four and I'll take their word for it. But they've also said that they would like that to be the last season. And, and the reason I mentioned that is because Carl Hopper can't sit out a season. And I also think that this show doesn't work without him. I think he is one of the anchors that if removed, the show falls apart. Plus, I just right. really love David Harbour. Yeah, I like his character a lot. I mean, you're obviously not rooting for him to die. Glad that he's going to be alive. And yeah, I'm with you, Doug. Hopper can't sit a season out. I think we have to see what happens. And I guess yes. you set the next one over a holiday because they do mention getting together for Thanksgiving and or Christmas. That's true. I hadn't even thought about that. You're right. We probably do end up getting either a Thanksgiving or a, or a Christmas season next time around. Um, they've already done Halloween. They've done summer. I can't remember when season two took place. I thought season two was the Halloween. Yeah. What was season one then? I Christmas? Don't really, I don't know that it was particularly descriptive. Uh, I mean, yeah, the kids were in Christmas. school. <laughs> this is all getting cut. <laughs> as much as we enjoyed the television show, alongside this launched the Stranger Things video game. Yeah, the game did launch the same time. It's 1999. It plays like a 16-bit beat-em-up with role-playing elements to it. It goes right along with the show. In fact, you can play episode by episode, which is cool because what I did was I watched three episodes of the show and then I played three, then I watched two, and then I played two, and now I'm playing through the end of the game. Now, if you're into that old-school type of game, I think uh, it it really fits well. I think it's worth the 20 bucks. It's not going to blow you away by any means, but it was cool to play along with the story going on. So, Hopefully you haven't listened to any of this if you haven't watched the show yet. But if you are going to watch the show for the first time, playing it along with the game was was pretty cool. And I look forward to companies doing more of that stuff. We can get into E3 and the disaster that that was later. But yeah, <laughs> check out uh, check out the Stranger Things game. Since I'm talking about games really quick, check out Bloodstain Ritual of the Night. It is phenomenal. If you like Castlevania and Castlevania Symphony of the Night or any sort of the Metroidvania style games, it's off the chain. I trust your recommendations on this stuff. I'm, I'm putting that one on the list. I love seeing that multi-platform extension, you know, to be able to play, you know, to see something and then for them to be clever enough to build the game around it. And actually, you know, the notion of getting to play it episode to episode is really cool as well. So I'm totally down with it. I'll give it a whirl. How much total gameplay do you think you get out of it, Eric? I would guess six to eight hours. So relatively consistent with the actual pacing of the show then. Yeah, and relatively consistent for what a $20 game will normally get you. So let's talk Spider-Man then. (laughs) Best transition of the day. (laughs) You really swang right into that one. I know. (laughs) Thwip, thwip. Thwip, release. Thwip, release. So Heather and I went to see Spider-Man this morning. I loved it. I thought it was really well done. I thought there were some things about it that were risky. Um, I thought Mysterio, I I was really worried going into it. I was, I was wondering like how we were going to do Mysterio in a way that was not just kind of ridiculous. And I think that they, they did a, um, a pretty good job of putting legs around 
what I consider to be kind of one of the sillier of the of the um, Spider-Man villains. Um, Eric, you're obviously a little more. I mean, you're no, you're a lot more Spider-Man than I am. So where where are you at on it? Did you feel like Mysterio was well done? Very well done. In in fact, I think Jalen Hall nailed it. And he had to bring some sort of difference to the role than you see in the Mysterio in the, in the comic books. And I thought that that was accomplished. I thought that the way that they explained his illusions was done very well. And there's a scene about, uh, I guess it's right near the end of the second act of the movie where Spider-Man's hallucinating. And I thought that was probably my favorite sequence in the entire film. I thought it was really well done. And it with in a full theater with a good sound system, you felt like you were hallucinating yourself a little bit and felt like kind of inside of Spidey's head, if that right. makes sense. And I think that's something that's even hard to get across in a comic book. I don't think it's easy to get across in a film either. I saw another movie that actually did it really well this weekend too, Midsummer. We're not going to talk about that. But that hallucination sequence to explain Mysterio kind of as a villain and what he does to Spider-Man was spot on. Spot on. I was thinking about Ditko and the way he originally drew those sequences, because obviously, you know, he's credited with helping to create the character. And I'm, I'm sure he probably had some involvement in the actual concept, but obviously he's the one that executed the drawing on it. And if you go back and you look at the way those Ditko sequences are drawn for the hallucination states, if you will, they looked very, very similar to the way Ditko originally did it. I mean, I, I thought there was a really respectful nod to Ditko in the way that it was done. Also in the costume that he invents near the end of the film, I'm pretty sure Ditko invented the underarm webbing wings, correct? Yeah, and to give credit where credit's due, one of the things that I love about the way Marvel kind of handles what I consider to be kind of some of the sillier aspects of like, you know, the... the, the the way the comic books were originally drawn, for instance, or whatever, is that they come up with an exceptionally clever rationale for something that's kind of a nod to the way it was originally done. Like, let me give you my two examples. Um, if you go back and look at the Vulture from the first Spider-Man from uh, from Homecoming, uh, you know the silliness of the this old crone in a green suit with the with the hairy fuzzy hair around the neckline was just was silly. It looked preposterous. But the nod to it and the way they did it with Keaton, where he had like that that old flight suit on that had kind of the chamois wool at the neckline. It, it, it was a it was a nod to the way the original character was drawn, but made it updated in a way that you didn't have to explain away the silliness of it. Right. Of the original design. And with with Mysterio, it was really the same thing. Um, you know, the giant fishbowl head. It was drawn in the 1960s. It's it's kind of silly by its nature, but re-envisioning that as like this monster three-dimensional heads-up display that he was working from and that, you know, it was wraparound because it was creating the illusions and everything, you know, giving that legs so that you could use the original design, but you gave a practical reason why it was done that way. Marvel is just so good at doing that kind of stuff, knowing where to make those small tweaks. They never cease to amaze me in their insight when it comes to that stuff. And to be fair, we got the fishbowl, too. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. You got the fishbowl. And, we and got, you got the got original costume. But you got a solid explanation for why this silly-looking fishbowl head was there. I mean, it was because of this three-dimensional display to run all the drones. So, yeah, I, I just love those little attentions to detail that they, that they take. I'm going to interject here and say that I really did not find Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio to be a, a compelling villain. And I know that We've talked about 
very often how Marvel suffers from the weak villain syndrome. I don't think there was any point in this movie where I felt threatened by this character. Like he just didn't have the weight of, to use your example, Carl, of Michael Keaton's vulture, which made you very uneasy. And you, it was very clear that this guy was capable of using whatever means necessary and at his disposal to wreak havoc. But Mysterio just kind of felt like a disgruntled employee, which is exactly what he was. That was right. trying to fuck some shit up, but uh, he didn't really scare me. I guess I didn't have that same problem. I wouldn't say he was necessarily scary, but I thought the psychological aspect of what Mysterio does was well done. I didn't really like that he had a team of like 20 fucking real people that were working with him, too. I don't know what they were going with with that angle. Honestly, from the trailers, I was really hoping that it wasn't Mysterio's illusions, that it was actually Hydro Man and Sandman. That's what I had originally thought. I thought we were really going to get a, a big villain team up. But I guess I had no problem with Hall's performance. I thought he did a great job. I'm splitting the difference between the two of you because I'm sort of with Doug on that. You think about it, it's actually kind of a retread of Batman Forever, right? Because Carrie was a disgruntled employee that built the the, the telepathic uh, television set. And we Bruce don't Wayne talk fired. about that movie on this podcast. So, so you know, you got you got the disgruntled superhero employee that comes back for revenge, which we saw that in uh, Batman Forever. The other thing, this issue was kind of tabled in Civil War, but I think it's fair to bring this back up again. Is how much of the shit that's gone wrong in the Marvel universe has actually been either directly or indirectly Tony Stark's fault. Because once again, like none of this was possible if, if, if Tony Stark hadn't built this fucking drone satellite that let all this stuff happen in the first place. And then, oh, by the way, turn it over to a 16 year old kid. That's the it, part of the movie that I'm most excited to talk about. They executed not only the, the transition out of Endgame, but I think they're taking a very tongue-in-cheek approach to how central Stark has been to the MCU and how they're literally trying to pass the torch to Spider-Man, who is now part of the MCU, thanks to Sony. And they talk about it in the movie, and that's really obviously what they're trying to position from a strategy standpoint. Spider-Man's got to be the central character because... You know, if they'd have had him from the beginning, it would have been a much different MCU. But now that Iron Man's gone, and you could even argue that they got rid of Iron Man so that Spider-Man could inherit this mantle. But that was, I thought, very well done storytelling. I loved the the Edith joke about, you know, even dead, I'm I'm the hero. Yeah, that was awesome. And and, and you're, I mean, to to your point, Carl, you're right. That things have been built around not only the mistakes he made, but they address that head on. And I love that. I mean, Happy talks about how Stark second guesses his every decision and you know he fucked up with Ultron he fucked up with these glasses and that's just a very realistic kind of approach to a superhero universe where like half the decisions that they make don't actually turn out to be good ones right you know Batman always has the you know he's Santa Claus he knows everything but my god how many times has he betrayed his friends how many times has he double crossed them how many times has he put together execution plans in case he ever had to take any of them out you know how many times has he had the a mother with the same name as another superhero. Yeah, at least once. <laughs> but to your point, you know, with him becoming really the next Iron Man or, you know, your, your, your leader, if you will. Personally, my favorite scene in the whole movie is when he goes back to the render console and starts taking things apart and is uh, working with the computer like like Starkwood. 
And Happy gets that that look where he he knows that the right choice has been made. I thought that was like the most pitch perfect moment in the whole movie in terms of like making that point and acknowledging that this was the right decision to pass the torch to not only to, to Spider-Man, but to Tom Holland, too. He could carry Marvel from this point forward. The one thing I was a little disappointed about, and and there may still be a way to fix this on, on a long enough road, is I was really, really, really hoping that the surprise was going to be that Tony was the new AI you know, Tony was now Friday. Tony was Jarvis and that he was going to be inside the kid's head for a while talking to him. Kind of that father figure role like, you know, how many of us would love that? You know, your dad's voice inside your head telling you you're making the right decisions, talking about those things. And I, I was really hoping that we were going to get that from the artificial intelligence that it was actually going to be Tony. That would have required, though, that they actually had Robert Downey Jr. in the movie, which they couldn't. Well, if he I was going to say that that AI costs 20 million a movie to to say words. Right. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's a pretty expensive AI from the perspective of your uh, screen screen actor guild agreement. Right. And I don't think you can have him in this movie. If not, there's no impact from uh, from Endgame at all. And you have to have impact. I think one of the biggest mistakes DC Comics ever made was bringing Superman back four months after he died. You have to let this sit a little bit. Even right. if Iron Man is going to come back, which I'm not saying that he's not, you have to let this sit. And I think they did a good job of that. But when Peter handed over Mysterio the glasses, I was sitting there cringing like, come on, you're supposed to be smart, Peter Parker. <laughs> how, how can you not tell that this guy you met 20 minutes ago <laughs> is not the best choice? Uh you just handed over a multi-billion dollar weapon system to a guy you met 20 minutes ago. Like, I don't I don't care about anything that this person's done in those last 20 minutes. You you don't do that. And and that was kind of probably the hardest sell in the movie to to, to sort of reconcile. I'm like, come on. That I, Are you I, kidding? As a parent, that resonated with me very strongly. Like really? you've got teenagers who have this new influence in their life. And all of a sudden that person is the most important, most respected, like can do no wrong. That is absolutely a, especially a male teenager move is to all of a sudden put this new influence on a pedestal. Like I said, I had no problem with that. That's fair. I mean, different perspective on it overall though. I mean, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a fun ride. Um, it was an awesome way to sort of cleanse the palate. You know, you had to set aside some of the darkness that was inevitable within game and uh, and do something that was a little more fun, a little more lighthearted. And again, that's that's I, I give some of the the silliness of the Mysterio villain in the first place a pass because of that, that we needed something that was a little more lighthearted. It was really nice to see a Marvel movie that wasn't shot in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> really, it was I mean, a lot of that stuff was shot on location, which you could totally tell it had a different feel. And I think with a movie called Far From Home about a trip to Europe, you need to do that. <laughs> we can't use the food court at the mall, huh? I think that was an intentional decision, right? Like, let's take the audience out of every location that they're familiar with, because I think the only locations that were reused were some shots of the school. Um, and I don't even know that it was the same school. I wasn't paying that close attention. But maybe the apartment, everything else was, in, you know, in some far flung part of the world. And I've heard the word palate cleanser used a lot in the reviews that I read of this movie. And I think that's 
exactly what it serves as. And you, and you have to take people out of everything that they're familiar with to serve as this nice, you know, tidy package that closes phase three and brings us into phase four, which, as you guys know, the end credit sequence um, did a fairly nice job of. So let's talk about the end a little bit, because there's some things that I walked out sort of scratching my head over. And it's and it's obviously in the the, the credit scenes. Right. Um, so Nick Fury is obviously the Green Goblin. Right. <laughs> he and uh, Colby Smulders. I can never remember her character's name. Are Maria actually, Hill. There yeah, you go. Maria Hill. Are actually uh, the aliens from Captain Marvel. They're called Scroll. Scroll. Thank you. If all the events in Captain Marvel uh, took place, what was it? 91. Is that right? 90, it was 91, 92, 93, somewhere in there. Right. Does that mean that the Nick Fury that we've been dealing with all along in the Marvel universe is this scroll and that Nick Fury has been on the ship the whole time? That's the exact question that the end scene poses. <laughs> so what, what the hell has real Nick Fury been doing all this time? If, uh, if green goblin, Nick Fury has been the one that's like driving the bus with the development of the Avengers and everything else. Did you guys notice that they emphasized the cat scratch, like claw mark part of his scar in this movie? We didn't know the origin of how he lost his eye until Captain Marvel. And he always had like some trauma there. But in this movie, it was very clearly like three or four cat claws that went from the top of his forehead down into his cheek. That's an amazing catch because I the answer is no, I did not. But now that you said it, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, you're absolutely right. They they definitely were sort of telegraphing that to us as an audience that there was going to be a reveal on that at the end. So I, I think so. I think that was how you knew from the beginning, if you were paying attention, that this wasn't the real Nick Fury, because it didn't look like that in every other MCU movie that we've seen. But as far as the scroll who was impersonating him knew, like that would be what his face would look like since maybe he had the information of how he lost his eye. I have a friend who's seen it twice, and he says if you watch the way Samuel L. Jackson walks, it's different in this movie than any of the other Marvel movies. So what that suggests then is that this is a new development, that he's the one that's here, that it's not been right. the scroll all along. But I that means so. so so maybe maybe that's the setup going into like our second Captain Marvel movie or something that we're going to get the explanation for why you know, Nick Fury is actually on the ship and it's a scroll that's standing in for him. Maybe Nick Fury uses the scrolls so he can be in five places at once and call on the shots from that ship. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting because it was a cool in cut scene, but it really left a lot of questions uh, and it didn't really answer a lot, which I know to some extent is obviously the purpose of that. You know, it's the teaser to get you to go somewhere else. But it was so it was so broad that it didn't it didn't really point you in a direction. You were just like, oh, okay, well, that's that's weird and not really left with anything for context. Carl, your Adam's apple is like hypnotizing me and putting me to sleep. Can you adjust your camera so that I can actually see the top part of your face? Thank you. There you go. Did Sorry you guys that. notice the tower in the final swing sequence, Avengers Tower? I didn't. Well, it's all torn down and there's a sign on it that says something exciting coming soon. One, two, three, dot, dot, uh, dot. Nice. And of course, what that leads us to believe is where Avengers Tower stood is going to be the Baxter building. Nice. Yeah, man, that's a great catch. I didn't realize that. 
I didn't even notice that either. I was so enamored by the appearance of J.K. Simmons, which I was not prepared for. And I, I think most of the audience probably wasn't either. How exciting is that? I don't know how they're going to how they're going to do that, because obviously, I guess you can't really do Peter Parker going to work for Jonah anymore. I think that that time has kind of passed. Right. Well, and, and I think we're going to do knows his identity, but it's good to see J.K. back. Everyone knows his identity, but you've just been told by someone who has been confirmed to be uh, a murderer and uses illusion technology. Like, how credible is this person? Just because he says something, I mean, my response to that would be, how can you trust anything this guy says? And then the question becomes, well, why is he picking on a, you know, a teenager from Queens? But. And, they can and, they can explain that away very easily. Oh yeah, it's it, it's super. I mean, we we were just talking about the scrolls. I mean, you can fix it with the scrolls. You know, I mean, you you, you do the classic uh, Superman thing where you put Clark Kent and Superman in the same place at the same time and you throw everybody off the scent. I mean, it's a, that's easy comic book trope to fix. But what Let's I th- hope they do something a little bit better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not convinced J.K. Simmons is actually going to appear in in future movies as J. Jonah Jameson. I think that might have just been a nod to the fans. Well, I mean, his dance card's full with all the DC movies that they're getting ready to do. So is it, though? That was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the joke. That, was I, the that joke. went right over my head. Hey, I'm the only one that's drinking. So. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, then. So overall, closing down phase three, I feel like it was good. We heard this several times now, the palate cleanse that we needed. Uh, we needed to end phase three on a little bit of a happier note than just Stark dying. As a side note to that, for as big of a deal as they made out of Stark dying, and I get it, you know, he's Avenger Prime and everything. I feel like the Black Widow has not really gotten that fair of a shake as far as the role that she played in all this. Like, you know, she died, too. And no one's doing graffiti paintings of Natasha. I thought that that she was a little underserved by the by the writers and the directors for not getting not necessarily Tony Stark level acknowledgement of the role that she played in all this. But they've kind of glossed over how important she was to making all this stuff work in the first place. You have a shot in Endgame that's gorgeous of every female character in the Marvel Universe except her. Think about that for a second. That shot doesn't exist if Black Widow doesn't work to start. But she's not even in that. So you put that poster on your wall and you don't even have arguably the first cinematic Marvel female hero. I felt like for as good as these guys are at hitting all the beats and tying up all the loose ends, I was a little bummed. I felt like she deserved a little bit better treatment when all was said and done. I know this is a little bit of an in-game discussion at this point, but, you know, we saw so much of Stark was the hero, Stark was the hero, and Far From Home that it just got me thinking about it again. I feel like she was very underserved because she played a, a hugely important part in in Endgame. She got the Whitney Houston montage at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. And, and that was genius. I, that was so a bunch of high school kids with with TV editing equipment turning out something that they thought was great that was just awful. I mean, it was so, so well executed. That was that was probably one of the best bits that they did in the whole movie. We're still getting a Black Widow movie, right? Yes, and rumor is it takes place in the past, back when she first meets Hawkeye. And what's next on the, the MCU slate? 
I don't think they have announced anything. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, movies are in production. Don't get me wrong. They're making movies right now, but I don't think there's another one this year. Correct. I don't no. think so. I don't think anything's been announced for next year yet. Now, granted, Comic-Con's this week, so we're probably going to get some more information that that leaks out. But they've been really playing their next slate of films close to the vest, which I think is super smart. This is somewhat conspiratorial, but I was wondering if maybe they had to pump the brakes a little bit because of contract-related stuff. You know, we owe at Netflix anything we make between this date and this date for a, a certain amount of distribution. And... We're pumping the brakes on releasing anything until we're outside that window so we don't have to give over any more material to Netflix prior to, you know, Disney Plus coming online. So it could be something, you know, as under the covers as that, that it's got to do with contract stuff for what they still owe out in syndication and uh, premium stream service. That's one reason why we might never see New Mutants. You know, we talked a little bit about this last summer. It's interesting because this this war is heating up now. And it's going to get ugly before all said and done. I mean, I, I I don't know how it's going to shake out, man. I really don't because, you know, Netflix is a juggernaut. But if Warner Brothers pulls its content to its own stream service, if, um, uh, you know, Disney, Lucas, all this stuff pulls their own stuff in house, because how hard is it to run your own stream service now? It's just a question of what people are willing to pay for threshold pricing on it. Right. It leaves Netflix in a bad spot because they cannot hope to generate enough content on their own to fill a slate. They just can't. There's no way. So where does it leave them? Um, so it'll be really interesting. You know, what do you do as Disney with wanting to do more uh, complicated content like Daredevil and that kind of thing? Like, do we just not get to see any more R-rated content because of the platform service that it's going to run on? You know, so all of this stuff is very not. interesting. You, you hope we don't see more R content. No, I hope, I hope that we do see more R content. I hope Disney doesn't neuter those shows i yeah. love or daredevil <laughs> yeah, yeah i love daredevil season three i thought it was great i couldn't wait to see a season four right i was hoping that we get to see more of the defenders i thought luke cage season two was good but no how does netflix compete i don't know because i watch one or two original shows on netflix every year but that's it and i think their movie selection leaves a lot to be desired compared to hulu and amazon prime sometimes now, the one interesting note with Netflix is that I don't know if you guys caught this or not, but um, Sandman is in development as a series now for Netflix. Maybe DC is looking at pivoting off its own stream platform and partnering with Netflix to, to distribute their content instead. So, again, this is all just 100 percent speculation. But but, yeah, I thought it was very interesting that we're going to see a Sandman series on Netflix. This was just uh, announced like a day or two ago. So that, you know, the fact that we're going to see that on Netflix in the midst of DC trying to get its shit together with Warner Brothers and do this larger uh, distribution platform. I thought that was very surprising that that was going to happen. Going back to your point about looking forward to their movie slate, I think we know we get Black Panther next year, right? The Black Panther sequel and Guardians 3 sometime in 2021. Yeah, but we've also Thor got four is in pre-production. We're getting uh, another uh, Thor. Uh, yes. Yeah, a fourth Thor. Hem Hemsworth re-signed. Chris Evans and, and Downey Jr. are out, but Hemsworth decided that he wasn't done, which is why we're getting him in Guardians 3 as well. But another reason they may not have been really eager to talk about what they're doing next is that they've got this whole stable of new characters from Fox, something you guys might have heard of called the X-Men, that they're going to 
have to find a way to roll into this MCU? Uh, I think uh, it's a mistake. No, I think it's finally Marvel gets all their weapons back. Doug and I have talked about this before that I think one of the happiest accidents that happened for uh, Marvel MCU in the first place is that you didn't have Spider-Man, you didn't have Fantastic Four, and you didn't have X-Men for a couple of reasons, right? Because first of all, that means you could wait and you could roll Spider-Man out. Like you think about it, if if they hadn't had the legal problems with Spider-Man because of the distribution deal with Sony, then from the very beginning, you may not have seen an Iron Man-centered Marvel Universe. You would have seen a Spider-Man-centered Marvel Universe in all likelihood, right? So you hit gold with with Downey doing it in Downey style and carrying this damn thing for 10 years. And you didn't introduce the kid until what, three, like it was like, what, three years ago, Civil War, right? So you really saved your biggest gun for the second act, if you will, right? Like he, you, you now can run 10 years on, on Spider-Man if you want, right? And, and they would not have had the restraint necessary to make a decision like that had the uh, ability not been taken from them in the first place. You know, so I think they've, they, they benefited greatly from it in that way. And the other thing is like when you start introducing the X-Men and even the Fantastic Four, this world gets so crowded. Like how do you tell into the world stories with all these characters over and over again constantly? Like when does the world rebuild itself? I just think it's too big. I, I would still, in some ways, rather they silo off the X-Men world and maybe do a little crossover stuff, but almost keep it as, you know, Earth 2, if you will, and do an X-Men Earth 1 and or Earth 2 or whatever, and then keep MCU Prime kind of the way it is minus the X-Men. Completely disagree. I want to see Reed Richards interact with Logan and Spider-Man and Submariner and all those interactions from the comics. I do agree with you that the universe is better, that they did not have all their toys to start with. But now we've told 20 plus movies with those toys. Let's throw some other shit out there. I can't wait to see what they do with the X-Men because it's a perfect time to recast everyone except for Ryan Reynolds, everybody and recast the fantastic four. We're obviously not going to have the miles Teller, uh, Michael B. Jordan, fantastic four anymore. Recast them as well. Get a good, foundation in there and then tell different stories it doesn't always have to be end of the world and you can keep the x-men off doing shit on other planets i think they do a really good job of doing that in the comic books no i want all of it oh my god can you imagine seeing dr doom and magneto teaming up that would be fucking stellar or a spider-man deadpool wolverine movie rated r i don't know i mean i i just i worry that it starts to fall under its own weight i i do i mean i i just I think they got a gift of it all not being legally allowed to exist in that same universe. And I think you have to retire some content to make room for it. And I don't know that anyone's going to be judicious enough to retire content properly. And here's the other thing. You know, X-Men has had a 20-year run. I mean, we really haven't been without an X-Men movie for what? Like, no more than like three to four years since 1999. I mean, so do we really want more X-Men movies? And the I mean, I know was said about Spider-Man, though, and look where we are. And it's fair. Yeah. I mean, I just I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not saying that there's a right answer to this. I just um, have watched the X-Men slowly perform worse at the box office. And it makes me wonder, like, is it the quality of the content? They're Did producing? you see Logan? <laughs> 
I mean, but is it the quality of the content or is it? I mean, but Logan's. I mean, that's different. I mean, that's it's such a unique standalone. It's like it's like doing Dark Knight Returns. I mean, it's just going to be good because it's a Days, swan Days song. of Future Past was fantastic, also. Yeah, but I just wonder if there's enough room for it. That's all. So I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope they do it well, and I hope they bring it in and make something amazing out of it. But um, I've just always been very glad that that stuff wasn't part of of uh, Marvel Prime. I think if anything, Endgame demonstrated that you can bring dozens of characters into a movie and literally have it become the highest grossing movie of all time. And yeah, you have to give your fans a little credit at this point to be able to to be educated about backstories or another perspective. Maybe you don't. Maybe they've got so good at shepherding these characters and storylines and again, dozens of, of different personalities I can't imagine that Faggy and team haven't game planned this out another two decades and we're going to see all of these characters interacting very regularly very soon. I, I'd love to see him do it well. I really would. I just I guess maybe what I'm saying is I don't have the vision for it. You know, I don't I don't see how you can do that without it becoming Marvel different. doesn't have him anymore either, Carl. So don't feel yeah. bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Hollis, that was good. Yeah, <laughs> the rust is off, brother. <laughs> I've still been doing shit occasionally, you know. I haven't completely retired this year. I've just had a string of bad luck. <laughs> Life happens, right? So what else do you guys want to say about Spider-Man? The last thought that I think I would add is that it's going to be really interesting to see how they make Spider-Man the foci around which the rest of the MCU is built. I'm really looking forward to that because they've got a young actor who has demonstrated an ability to play a very real, endearing, young, naive, and in some ways kind of a newly minted badass, because there were some great action scenes in this latest movie. But uh, Sony and and Marvel have apparently decided that uh, he is the tentpole around everything else will be built. The Peter Tingle is the tentpole? Got it. (laughs) Uh, I was going to talk about the comedic relief, because... JB Smoove is all right, but he's a step down from Hannibal Burris's. Um, wasn't he like the gym coach in Homecoming? Right. There was some decent comic relief in it, and uh, I even saw, kind of found the Happy and Aunt May relationship thing to be kind of cute. I don't know that they'll actually take that anywhere, but it was fun, you know, to see. It'll be very interesting. To your point, you know, can you really build him as the as the next Iron Man? It's it's a complicated question. Like, can can he become the center of all of it? Yes, he can definitely become the center of all of it. But do you actually practically need someone else to fill the role of being Iron Man? In other words, like, um, you know, Black Panther's little sister. I can't remember her name. Shuri, right? Is it Shuri? Is that right? Okay, Shuri. So in my mind, okay, let him be the tentpole that runs everything. But I think you introduce her as the gunsmith, if you will, right? Like, because she clearly is as close to start as you're going to get in terms of intelligence and aptitude for that kind of work, right? She's much smarter than Peter from the, you know what we have seen of what she's done in Wakanda, right? She was smarter than Stark, and she was smarter than Banner to figure out a way to remove the Mind Stone. So clearly, if you need somebody that's going to be your gunsmith, she should probably be the gunsmith for the Marvel Universe. Russo brothers are on record stating that she's the smartest character in the universe. Exactly. So... I would love to see her become Robin, if you will, to Spider-Man that uh, is the one that's there 
quarterbacking things from Stark Tower or wherever the hell they all end up running this thing from at that point. Probably start calling Happy Sloppy since he's taking Stark's second helpings there, right? Oh, all right. that's all I got. <laughs> that's all I got. It was, it was funny. It was worth it. One thing that I did want to note that I thought was pretty cool is that, you know, we, we obviously all three played the Spider-Man game and really enjoyed it earlier than what the fall. I guess it was it came out in like October and, you know, September. So so one of the things that I thought was so great about it is I, I loved that once you understood how to really control Spider-Man, like just the sheer joy of like swinging around the city just playing was 50 plus percent of the joy of the game. And I thought that as I was watching the movie, you kind of gained a a fun appreciation for the way he moved in the movie by virtue of like playing the game. I was thinking about this as I was watching the movie. I thought, you know, really he has the coolest locomotion of any superhero. I mean, the way he moves and gets around is like, there's, there's nothing cooler. Like straight flight is not that cool. You know, Batman swinging on the rope, not that cool. His ability to use the environment the way he does is there's nobody that has cooler locomotion. And I thought in this movie, they did a really great job of, of highlighting that, you know, using the the drones as kind of artificial platforms that he could work off of and do things when he was inside the monster was just like stellar the way they the, the way they sequenced all that. So. So, yeah, I just uh, I, I thought it was really cool that it looked and felt like the way the gameplay was from the game this fall. We didn't mention MJ at all and how fantastic Zendaya was in this movie. We just did. (laughs) (laughs) I like her a lot. And I like that, especially with all the Little Mermaid bullshit going on right now, you really can't complain about MJ and Spider-Man because she's not Mary Jane Watson. She's a different character that happens to share the same initials. Correct? I didn't know that. I don't think she's Mary Jane Watson. Is she not? No, she's not. She's not. She's, Interesting. Yeah, she's an MJ. Her first name starts with M. Her last name starts with J. They mention it in Homecoming. Like she's got a name, right? Yeah, yeah. she's not Mary Jane Watson. So in in this universe, we have yet to see Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy. Correct. And in the comics, Ned's girlfriend in this movie is Peter's first girlfriend. Betty is. Oh yeah. So do you think we see a Green Goblin in the next Spider-Man movie? Do you think it's time to roll him out? I hope not. Honestly, I'd rather see Hobgoblin or them do something different. I like that they're going kind of deep into the well of villains because besides Batman, I think Spider-Man probably has the strongest rogues gallery in comics. A lot of good people to play with. We've never really seen a good Rhino. I really would love to see them do Craven the Hunter. I think there's a lot you can do with that story that hasn't been done before. I think we've still got some Spider-Man villains that can be tapped. And I guess Green Goblin's the obvious way to go. I mean, that's Spider-Man's Joker. Right. I don't know. That's not the story I want to see again. I know that story so well. And considering that they've been telling these stories as as an evolution with the latest movie building on you know the events of the past few fitting green goblin in at this point would be difficult because at, you know at what point in these threads of history do you pick up and start telling the story from there which is the only way i can see them doing it yeah because you know he's as as you make a great point there because as a villain he's so ingrained in peter's life by way of harry that you have no context for in in this current timeline like he you would have to essentially do a different backstory explanation for how he came into his life to even make it work in the first place so good analysis i think you're probably right we don't see it 
what would you like to see the most, Eric? Craven? Yeah, probably Craven. They kind of allude at the end of this film that Flash is going to become a villain. The classic trope of my parents don't love me, and so I'm going right. to blow up the world. Right. I, I thought that was done really quick, but I was like, hmm, I wonder what they're doing with, with Flash. I actually really like the Flash in this world. And in fact, when he get punched in the nuts when he was doing his video, that was the hardest <laughs> I laughed in, in the movie. Uh, just because the character needs that comeuppance and, hey, there's nothing wrong with a little nut shot. Yeah, no, Craven the Hunter, or I, I hate to say it, Venom done well would be amazing. It's another one you have to really have a lot of backstory for, which is why I think it's easier to do the Vulture or to do Mysterio because there's not a lot to set up there. Got bring D'Onofrio in to be the Kingpin and bring Daredevil in. I wonder if you see Black Cat, maybe. A little Felicia Hardy action? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. No, Doug, not to not give Zendaya credit, though. She did a great job with the role, and I, I like her better than I think I've liked any of Spider-Man's love interests in any of the other films. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you guys in, in text a couple days ago, she has a new show that's called Euphoria that's on HBO. I am tremendously impressed with her as an actress. I mean, she's really, really good. Um, she's She was a great choice, and you're right, it was an interesting direction to take the character for Spider-Man. I think you're going to see some amazing stuff from this girl in the next couple of years because it's it's heartbreaking, but it's fiction. So, I mean, it just tells you how good she is at what she does. Yeah, kudos to her as well. What are we at time-wise? Plenty. Oh, yeah. All right. Who wants to close it down? Here on Tap In Geek Out, one of us hasn't been drinking and also has done a panel or a podcast within the last four months. So he's probably the best one to get us out of here. Good to actually bring you guys some content. And I hope that you're listening to this right now. Thanks, as always, for following us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever you get your Tap In Geek Out fix. Also, thank you to Carl for joining us for this episode because normally when we record without him, he's just sitting there cringing, listening to how wrong we are. Uh, anyway, uh, Carl Lundin, Doug Lund, I'm Eric G. Hollis, and we are out.